Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Good morning, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. Welcome to Everything Co-op. You know, this is a wonderful, beautiful Thursday morning, and we are celebrating the National Co-op Business Association's 100th anniversary. They've been around since 1916 when cars were going for 300 and a loaf of bread was 7 cents. Things have changed a little bit in those years. And this particular month, we're celebrating what's going on internationally with NCBA. And today we have in the studio with us Ms. Amy Kokenauer, who's the Chief Operating Officer for CLUSA, their international division of NCBA. Good morning, Amy. Good morning, Vernon. How are you today? Oh, I'm great. Thank you. How are you? <laughs> Great's my word. <laughs> Just so great to be alive this morning. So CLUSA was, NCBA CLUSA was founded in March 18, 2016. How, how many communities, uh, co-op communities, do you, you all represent around the world or around well, the U.S.? Vernon, in the United States, there are about 40,000 cooperatives, and that represents about 150 million members uh, in the U.S. But we're also part of a very vibrant international cooperative community a member of what's called the International Cooperative Alliance, which represents about one billion people around the world. And last week, Chuck Good, their general director, I guess it's like the president or chief executive officer, was on the program. He called in from London last week. Yes, I know Chuck well. Yeah, great guy. Very good guy. He talked about one of the research that they did for international said, said that those countries where they have good governance, the governance is transparent and the governance has little to no, no, you know, they, where they still, or they do corruption. corruption. That's the word I'm looking for. Have you had that experience? Well, I think, it depends on whether we're talking about the country as a whole. The country as a whole. Or whether we're talking about the co-op movement within the country. But certainly within the co-op movements around the world, uh, democracy and transparency are very important principles. I have found, uh, you know, I do property management is what I do my daytime job. I manage housing co-ops, and that's where I got to know about them and learned about them. I did not learn anything about co-ops in my formal education. I have a couple of masters, but nowhere did they talk about co-ops. And I have found that if a housing co-op ha- has good governance and good management, then they can be successful. And the good part of that is knowledge and integrity, where integrity is the most important. 
And that seems to fit in with what Chuck was talking about. I found in the local area it works that co-ops can be highly successful if they have knowledge and integrity both. And governance is more important than management because governance set the rules. They set the policies and management implements them. So how did you get involved in this work? Well, I got involved in this work kind of in a roundabout way. Part of my background professionally is uh, working with immigrant and refugee populations in the United States. And I've always been very interested in social justice issues and issues of equity, equality, and ensuring that the most vulnerable people around us have access to things like education and health care and housing and all of those things. And I started working internationally uh, probably about 20 years ago and working in the field of international development, so focusing on vulnerable populations around the world, primarily in Latin America and the Caribbean is where I started. But about four years, four and a half years ago when I joined NCBA CLUSA, uh, this huge world of cooperatives opened up to me, and I have been learning uh, about that every day <laughs> and am really astonished by the amazing power of the cooperative community around the world. What do you mean by amazing power? Well, you know... The first time I went to an international cooperative alliance meeting was in Mexico about four years ago, and there were 2,500 people in the room from the cooperative movements around the world. Literally, there were probably 85 to 90 countries represented, and from every sector of the economy. And I just, I had never been in a place where you had cooperators in a room from every sector from around the world. And it just, it was really, it, it kind of blew my mind, really, um, to see these professionals working in energy and housing and finance and food and agriculture, um, working on gender issues and youth issues and working to improve their local economies and, and the, the quality of life for people. And I have been enamored with it ever since. Enamored, that's a good word, enamored. I've gotten enamored. I've fallen in love with co-ops. And I told you it's by working with housing co-ops and then seeing there's a 16-unit senior citizen co-op. Watching these seniors where it looked like in the beginning nobody had a, any more than a high school education, but come in and run a really good business. They run a business. They hold each other accountable. Uh, it's like self-help, the, the like the first value and self-responsibility, they took control and they take control and they learn how to run a business. So I've I've learned to en- be enamored by co-ops. The ICA, you said you went to Mexico, they're having their meeting in Quebec this year. And I'm going to try to get up to that. Chuck and I talked about, Chuck Good and I talked about it when he was on last week. So I got enamored at the U.N., the United Nations had 2012 as the year of the co-op, and so about November of 2011, there was a meeting at the UN. And to watch all of these people, whether it's Russia or China or Argentina, India, it just didn't make any difference what part of the world, but people came in, and Dame Pauline Green was on the show, and she said that they've had people, she was the chair of 
ICA. She knows she had six or eight years. She's off now. And she was saying that on their board, all kinds of different people. It didn't make any difference religion, political, sex, gender. I mean, it just didn't make any difference. People came on because there's one thing in common. That's family and community. And that's what co-ops bring. That's right. And actually, I was there at the same time you were at the oh. UN. We'd, okay. I'm surprised we didn't meet each other then. Um, and it was very powerful to have uh, folks speaking on the floor in the General Assembly at the UN, you know, having the ambassadors from all of these countries stand up and talk about the power of cooperatives in their countries and what co-ops are doing to transform economies, particularly for very vulnerable families. So it's exciting. And a lot of uh, progress has been made since 2012. Being on that, listen, I was invited because I was the president of the National Association of Housing Co-ops, and I said I could not talk. I could be, I could just be there and listen and just so I just had to soak it all up and listen to it, and it was phenomenal watching people and seeing how they um, were working in co-ops all around the world. So you say there are about 40,000 co-ops around the world with 150 million people. That's just in the U.S., actually, oh, in amazing. the United States, yeah. Around the world, the ICA estimates there are about 1 billion people who are members of cooperatives around the world. And you think about that and what that means for those families and those communities to have improved access to uh, education, health care services, financial access, food markets, et cetera. So you've been interested in social justice, equality, I guess financial equality. So it sounds like you should run for president because that seems like those are the kinds of things that are out there right now. Well, I think I have my hands full right now with the 20 countries that Clusa's working in. And it's very fulfilling to, to work in, in, in this field in international development with also with that foundation of, of cooperative principles and values that drives what we do in Clusa. So I'm going to ask you this real quick. Do you like what you're doing? I love my job. It's actually a privilege to be honest. It's a privilege to uh, work with the amazing team that I have and to be able to visit the countries where we work and talk to people who are benefiting from our programs and partnering with us. And it really truly is a privilege to see the impact of our work on people's lives. The privilege and what you love about is how you affect people. Is that right? I mean, you see how you and your group affect people and change lives. That's right. That direct impact is something that just brings daily fulfillment in my life, and it's actually a vocation. A vocation? What do you mean? It means something that one is called to. Oh, now you get into the spiritual side of That's it. That's right. <laughs> okay. Very much so. Okay. I had one show just talking about the spirituality of co-ops because it is, yeah, very rewarding. And I used to ask that question at the end of the show, but sometimes we wouldn't have enough time. So I started asking it at the beginning because everybody has been on the show for two and a half years. For two and a half years, all love what they're doing. So it's it's got to be something here because we're in the co-op world, help communities. Matter of fact, Papa Sin, who was on two years ago, two and a half years ago in October, he's from Senegal. He said that co-ops um, 
solve community problems. And if there is not a community problem, there is no need for a co-op. And I've been saying that ever since. He, he sort of branded that on me that that's the reason for co-ops is to help people solve their problems. We're right at our first break. Uh, Amy, we'll be right back. We'll get the news, the weather, and a little traffic, and we'll come back. Please don't touch that dial. 1450 WOL. Information is power, and that's the reason the National Cooperative Bank is sponsoring this program, to give you the information about the benefits of co-ops so that you can go out and either find a co-op to join or get get together for a group of people and start one. It could be a worker cooperative that's owned and operated, owned and controlled by the employees, or it could be a consumer cooperative where the people that buy the products and services own and control the business. Some uh, consumer cooperatives are housing co-ops or credit unions. There is a healthcare consumer cooperative in Madison where the patients own the business. So it's a basic patient-centric business. But right now we're going to come back with Amy and talk about what's going on in internationally. Uh, she's enamored with what she does. She loves what she's doing because it's a calling. It, she gets to help people, and that's where she started off with. But now she's able to help people with the cooperative model. So we're going to talk about Africa in this segment, and in the next segment we're going to talk about Southeast Asia, some of the things that's going on there. In the last segment we're going to talk about Latin America and she's going to give you uh, her sense of why the U.S. should care about what's going on around the world. So you said you're enamored. You love being on, on the ground. So what are some of the things that's happening that you're doing in Africa? Vernon, we're working about 12 countries in Africa right now. And our work is heavily focused in the rural sector, in sustainable agriculture, food security and nutrition, natural resources management, and, of course, cooperative development, so helping farmers get together, work together to improve their businesses through cooperatives. And you said natural resources? Yeah. Water, as as everyone knows, is a huge issue uh, in terms so of... Why do you have to go to Africa? Why don't you just go to Flint, Michigan? <laughs> I know. <laughs> but also land, okay. conflict on use of land, water, and other resources. And so one of the areas of work for us is working with communities on how to sustainably manage as a community these natural resources that helps avoid conflict but it also provides livelihood opportunities for people so can you when you go on the ground what are can you give me an example of a project that you're working with or that you've been enamored with when you see people how it helps people yeah, I'd love to. Um, let me tell you a little bit about what we're doing in Uganda. Uganda's an interesting place. It's the youngest population in the world. So in the U.S., our median age is about 38 years old. In Uganda, the median age is 15 years old, very young. Um, Uganda is a place that's also emerging from a lot of conflict. I, uh, you, a lot of listeners will remember the Lord's Resistance Army, Joseph Kony, and how there was a violent conflict going on in Uganda for many years, but particularly in the north of the country. Two million people were displaced from their homes and their communities. A lot of the young people in Uganda actually ended up growing up in internally displaced camps where there was very little access to education and health care and other kinds of basic needs that 
we have. And so there was this whole population in Uganda that really hasn't received the kinds of services and education and training that, that they need. Jesus. That sounds terrible. And also what little I know about population is if you have an average age of 15 and a half, even if everybody in that age range <laughs> as they grew up had two children, you're going to have population explosion. You have lots and lots of people. So, and it's uneducated, malnourished. Okay, so what, how do you step in and what do you do? So we've actually been working in Uganda for a number of years, and we first started working in the ag sector with producers, with smallholder farmers, uh, helping them organize into cooperatives and helping them collectively pool their resources for improved seed and improved farming techniques and also better access to prices and markets. In recent years, we, we started working on a program in conservation farming, which is really a way of farming that not only improves yields, crop yields, but also protects the environment, uses a lot less water, um, and, and is a more sustainable way of farming. Um, what we're doing now, Vernon, has to do with youth and addressing this population that I mentioned earlier mm-hmm. and working with youth economic opportunities in agriculture. Why the co-op model? I, mean, I, I, I hear you say you're pooling resources, but how does the co-op model kind of fit to help this and, or, or just do the normal stockholder model where somebody come in and invest some money and make profit and well that's a great question and i think that one of the reasons why we work with the cooperative model with these youth in uganda is that it really uh helps build community it allows the youth to be partnered with more well-established cooperatives, so they get mentored by other by um, existing co-ops uh, where adults are are, and also the cooperative allows there us to have sort of a cohort group whereby youth can learn from each other and have a mutual support system. So it sounds like you're talking about the cooperative principles: volunteer and open membership is number one. Number two is democratic member control. Number three is member economic participation, and that says that normally there's some money that they may have to put in, but also if there's surplus or profit, they get to share in it, or at least they get to say how that profit is used, staying in the business, or they could give themselves dividends. Autonomy and independence, they have the number five, which is the first reason that I fell in love with co-ops, and that is that there's education, training, and information, and you've already mentioned that both from the more senior cooperatives helping the younger ones, and then peer, younger people helping younger people. It seemed like that I learned when I was teaching that works really, really well. Matter of fact, they can teach each other better than the teacher a lot of times. And the cooperation among cooperatives, which is younger ones helping the older ones and each helping each other, and then concern for community and growing the community. So those are the seven principles of the modern cooperative, which fits in for all of the reasons you're talking about. And if you go in with the normal, which is what I learned with my MBA, is the most of the decisions are made on what's the highest and best return on investment for the stockholder. And normally that stockholder may be 
living in the U.S. or Europe or somewhere else. And so all of that profit gets taken away from the community. And the economic class I had talked about how many times the money would turn in a community is how wealthy that community is. And more often here in the United States in black and brown communities, it only turns one time. Somebody goes and makes some money, and then they go away from the community to buy services and products. But you want to get that to turn five to seven, eight times so in the community, so the community prospers. So, okay, that's why the co-op model in Uganda or in the U.S. or anywhere else in around the world. Where do, where do you all come in, and how do you all help here? Well, keep in mind, too, that people are making about 46% of the population in the areas we're working are making a dollar twenty-five a day or less. I mean, that's not a not, less, a, not an hour a day. Less than a Starbucks coffee. Dollar and costs. And less so, than any coffee. Less than any coffee. So you're talking a about a very disenfranchised population. You're talking about, but you're also talking about a lot of opportunity. And what we're seeing is youth just leaving the countryside, looking for work in urban areas. And not realizing that there is an incredible future in agriculture if agriculture is treated as a business, a co- and, and in particular with the values of a cooperative business. So what we're doing, first of all, is we're working with youth on foundational skills. That's reading, writing, and numeracy, financial literacy. Reading, writing, arithmetic. That's right. And when they were growing up in internally displaced camps, they didn't get some of those foundational skills. So we have to first start by building those skills and getting, getting youth to a point where they can uh, do books and they can, they can read about uh, the, the instructions for doing, you know, applying pesticides or not pesticides necessarily, but using the input. So um, that's important. And then... The other piece is technical skills, improve farming technologies, improve skills around uh, on-farm work, but also looking for opportunities off-farm. For example, providing transportation services for cooperatives, for farmers to get their product to market, providing tillage services, providing services to support other aspects of the work, like processing. Um, So... There, there's a whole range of jobs that youth can get engaged in in the rural sector and have strong livelihood opportunities. I can see why you love doing this. Helping to train people and helping to get them to um, have meaningful work. A dollar and 25 cents, it's like $25 a month. Yeah. And the other piece is, you know, we're working to target 26,000 youth right now in this project that's funded by the MasterCard Foundation. And in order to reach that number of youth, the, the association, the cooperative model is a very important vehicle to be able to reach that number and to provide a learning and, and, and supportive environment. For so them. we're going to... Take our second break, and then we're going to come back and talk about what you're doing in Southeast Asia. Uganda is awesome, uh, $25 a day. I don't know how to live on that. But we'll be right back. Please don't touch the dial. We'll get the news or weather and traffic and be right back with you. 1450 WOL. 
Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. The program is Everything Cooperative. Uh, and we've been sponsored by the National Cooperative Bank, whose mission is to help cooperatives grow by supporting and being an advocate for America's cooperatives and their members. Placing special emphasis, special emphasis on serving the needs of communities that are economically challenged. And in the U.S., I mean, a lot of these communities that are challenged from what we've been talking about are rural communities where 80% of them are majority brown or black folks or urban communities, mostly brown or black people. But when you go to places like Uganda, that's war ravaged for many years, average age 15.5 and income of $25 a month or they're about $125 a day. They're tremendously economically challenged. And NCBA Clusa celebrating their 100th year today. We have Amy Kokenauer with us today who is talking about what has been going on or what they've been helping and using this cooperative model to help people around the world. Um, we talked about Uganda in the first, uh, just talked about Uganda. Now we're going to go to Southeast Asia, and it looks like war there too. Caused a lot of problems. Yeah, East Timor is something we heard about a lot in the news back in 2001, around there, 99, 2000. Uh, there was a, a conflict for independence going on with Indonesia. Uh, so about 14 years ago in 2002, East Timor, officially called Timor-Leste, uh, became independent. But we've actually been working there even before then, since 1994. Hmm. So what are some, have you been there? I have. In fact, I was just there recently, about a couple months ago. And you're talking about enamored and f being pulled into this world as, as your path. What did you find when you were there? What did you see? This is a fascinating case of how a cooperative can change the landscape of a country. And I'll tell you why. In 94, when NCBA Clusa started in East Timor, there was a coffee industry there, but very, very fragmented, very weak, uh, old coffee plants, not, not good quality. And so one of the things that we did was we got some support from the U.S. Agency for International Development and said, we're going to work on building the coffee industry in this country as a form of economic livelihood for the approximately 1.8 million people in East Timor. So at that time, what we started working on is improving the, the quality of the coffee plants, uh, which had been neglected for so long, actually, that they were farming organically. And so by getting organic certification and then later fair trade certification and improving the quality of the coffee with the coffee farmers and the and, and this local cooperative called Cooperativa Cafe Timor, um, we were able to help create an amazing specialty coffee market globally, not just with the cooperative in East Timor and all of the 22,000 member owners, the coffee farmers. Wait a minute, there's 22,000 members. Of the cooperative. Of the cooperative. In East Timor. In the are, are these different farmers, 22,000 yes. farmers? They are 22,000 coffee growers who are members of this cooperative. 
And so they come together on the front end to get better seed. Um, they learn how to plant better. They they just get all of these different ways of, of improving the quality. So th- that is called a producer cooperative when the farmers come together and they learn how to produce better and they they can buy it in, in larger bulk and get better pricing. That's right. And they can also sell at better prices. So that's a marketing co-op uh, on the other side, uh, the other end of the spectrum from getting the seeds and everything that they need, including education, to produce a better uh, product and then selling it and having more markets by coming together to have more to sell. And with the fair trade, I've learned, they get a good price. That's right. And so today in East Timor, the CCT, which is the Coffee Cooperative, is the largest private sector employer in the country, believe it or not. It's the largest private sector employer. And so it has had an incredible impact on the community. And there's even more to the story. Okay. Because this coffee is very high quality, because it's organic and it's also fair trade, the coffee farmers receive a premium that means an extra price on top of the pound for co- mm-hmm. the price per pound or kilo for coffee. They receive an extra payment for organic and fair trade. And with that payment, the cooperative has decided to invest in the health and the education of the of the coffee growing community. So they oh, hold have, on. Can you say a hallelujah here first? Yeah. <laughs> but wait, it even gets better. There are wait, literally oh. so they take this extra money that they make and they put it into the health of the individuals and then the education. Yeah, so they and are, the families. So the for the coffee growing families in very marginalized and remote areas of the country in the mountains. When you say marginalized, they're poor people. That's right. Economically but, challenged. That's folks. right. However, the landscape, their economic situation has changed dramatically since 1994 when we first started and and their health and their health situation and the reason for that is cct built eight health clinics they have three mobile clinic teams and 12 community extension teams that literally go door to door for things like prenatal care uh postnatal they 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 make sure that people are immunized um 97 and a half percent of the pregnant mothers in these communities have used the clinic services for prenatal care. And 96.6% of the children under two have started their immunization process. This is, this is, this healthcare system is, lar- is the largest non-governmental healthcare provider in the country. So not only is it the largest private sector company, it's also the largest rural healthcare provider besides the government. And so they, it has drastically impacted the lives of rural East Timorese coffee growers and their families and their communities. It's all concerned about community. That's the seventh principle. Now, what about education? They've also helped build schools, uh, provided you know, pre, pre, uh, sort of preschool age, nursery school level. Uh, they've improved school buildings. They have helped provide salaries for teachers. So they've they've really invested these dollars in the community as a whole, and it has 
had a huge impact in the country. So your work in helping them to help themselves, that's where the gratification comes. That's how you're so enamored because you can actually see how your work benefits children under two years old with immunization or mothers, pregnant mothers. Have you any stats on the results of this? And, And for instance, in 1994, if somebody got pregnant, what was the likelihood that they would have a miscarriage compared to today when they have all of this? I don't have those actual numbers, but what I can tell you is when you have a statistic of 97.5% of pregnant mothers getting prenatal care in these very rural, remote areas, that that is an incredible statistic considering the fact that most of these women did not have access to any health care, much less pre, prenatal care, before these clinics came into their areas. I can see why you're so enamored. Thank you for bringing us this. What do you see that's going to happen there now? What are your, what are your sort of goals? You have a goal in Uganda of reaching 26,000 youth. Where are you trying to go in Southeast Asia, in Timor? Well, this coffee cooperative has been so successful, Vernon, that they've now sort of gone to another level in terms of how they want to have an economic impact. And what that we're doing with them right now, and we have support from the U.S. Department of Agriculture, is we're div- helping them diversify their economic base so that it's not just coffee. They are now planting high-value crops like cassava and vanilla and pepper and cocoa, which are high-value crops with a guaranteed market that allow other kind of farmers in other regions of the country to also have an economic benefit from this cooperative. So the cooperative, (laughs) if the farmers plant those crops, the cooperative will guarantee the purchase, and that guarantees an income for these farmers. Okay. What about fruit fruit stands? or You you talked about transportation once earlier on. So you, you need transportation. You talk about education, health, uh, how, housing. So the cooperative isn't isn't um, necessarily providing housing, but I can tell you how the cooperative has impacted individuals and families. Um, there's this woman that I met while I was there just a few months ago. Her name is Agustina. She's 26 years old. She's Agustina. Got, Agustina. She's 26 years old. She has four children. She lives in a very poor area of the country. And she was uh, given the task of she she wanted to cultivate vanilla. And vanilla is a very, very difficult plant to grow. It's almost like an orchid. She built this amazing vanilla seedling structure, fantastic, and cultivated thousands of vanilla seedlings in this structure. She is going to sell those seedlings to farmers and she's going to make at $150 a kilo. And with that money, uh, when I asked her what was she going to do with this income that she's now getting that she didn't have before, she's going to build her own house, which is currently pretty much a shack. And she's going to provide support for her four children to make sure that they're in school and they have what they need to uh, be educated. Is she a single mom? Single mom? No, she does have a husband as well. But she used to just sell ran. She used to sort of sell fruit that grew on her property on the side of the road, which mm-hmm. is very 
very um, unstable sources of income, very seasonal, uh, very limited. And now she's making some real money, serious money for her area. And she is improving her standard of living for her and her family. And that's just one example of many. And you met her and you had a chance to talk with her and touch yes. her and see how it goes and see uh, the enthusiasm in her eyes. And Yeah, it was it was really great to see. And I have to say, some of the world's most renowned vanilla experts have been out to see that operation and have said that that's one of the best uh, seedling structures that they've ever seen. And she built it out of sticks and thatching from palm, from like palm branches and things. It was amazing to see. It was a it was a wonderful um, example of what training and focus on skills that are needed to improve one's lives, how they can transform somebody's life. What a creativity! Like she wouldn't have had a chance to be that creative without the co-op model, without you all being there, and provide something for the world. That's right. And uh, and mark my words, we're going to be seeing some amazing markets for vanilla and cassava and uh, coming out of there. And I, I did forgot forgot to mention, and I think this is important, the buyers for uh, the cooperative. The, in other words, the, who does the cooperative sell to when they buy this product? They're selling to major global trading companies like Starbucks and Green Mountain and McCormick's. <laughs> which is here in Maryland, yep. buying these products. And so this is a, an amazing example of the economic benefit and the social benefit that cooperatives bring. Amy, thank you so very much for bringing us these stories of what's happening in Asia and Africa with NCBA Clusa being around for 100 years. We're going to take our last final break. We only have one more segment to go. It goes fast when I'm learning and having fun. Thank you very much. We'll be right back. 1450 WOL. A lot of information this morning. We get a lot of information from Amy Kokonau, who is with NCBA Clusa. Amy, thank you so very much for coming in this morning and sharing all of this great data, what's happening in the world and how co-ops are helping our world. The motto uh, that we are using this year with NCBA is that cooperative enterprises builds a better world, and we're seeing that right now, building better world through cooperatives. So now we've, we talked about Africa, we talked about Southeast Asia. Let's go to our neighbors in Latin America. So what are some of the kinds of things that CLUSA, NCBA CLUSA is doing in Latin America? We've been working in Latin America actually since the 1980s, Vernon, so a long time. Um, and we've been working very much in the rural agricultural sector, and right now, we actually have also have a project in coffee. Okay. Uh, but there's a big problem going on with coffee in Central America right now. What is it? Well, it's, a, it's actually a fungus that has plagued the coffee. It's called coffee rust. And it attacks the leaves of the plants, which pretty much has wiped out about 80% of the coffee car- harvest in Central America. So if you're a coffee farmer, you can imagine the, the kind of devastation that has created with rural families in, in, in Central America. So this is going on right now as we speak? It's going on right now, particularly the harvests, 2012 to 2014. Harvests have, in some cases, some farmers and cooperatives have lost almost 
100% of their harvest in some areas. So it's going on now. How do they survive? Well, <laughs> not well. And it's been a real, a really, really difficult time for these rural families. A lot of them have had to migrate, a lot of, either internally into the cities or into other countries to find work. And it's, it's really been uh, a huge challenge in these areas. So how do you come in and help with this kind of a problem? Well, um, when, we, when we started working way back in the 80s, we actually created an organization, Clusa El Salvador. It's been a partner to us for many, many years. They've continued the work throughout these years. But we decided to go back in with some financing from the U.S. Department of Ag here in the U.S., to really address this coffee rust issue, not only to improve the coffee, but to find also some alternative crops that these farmers can grow as they're improving the coffee plants. So this rust is a fungus, so it gets on the leaf and then eats it, chews it? Yeah, it, 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 it almost looks like it, it, it discolors it, and it just, mm. it just basically destroys the plant. And so what we're doing is we're bringing in some rust-resistant plants, new coffee uh, uh, varieties, so the farmers are able to rehabilitate their farms by, by taking out the old ones and, and putting in the new ones. And then also sort of building the infrastructure to access better quality uh, seeds and inputs and things like that, and financing. I mean, no financial institution has wanted to provide any kind of financing for these farmers, and you can imagine Wonder why. why. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the risk is tremendous. It's almost a guaranteed loss if you're not addressing sort of the core issue, which is this, this plague. Okay, so how do, you, how do you get the funding, or how do you get... So with working with the U.S. Department of Ag, we've been able to create sort of a, a, a loan guarantee fund to minimize the risk on the financial side. So uh, the farmers are able to access some financing. They're able to, uh, which kind of has jump-started the sector. We're able to provide new t techniques, uh, provide these rust-resistant plants, but we're also providing training and connection with markets. So the other piece is also helping the farmers plant some other crops that are faster growing, uh, food crops and other crops that they can cultivate and, and sell as the coffee starts to come back. So you got other crops, you got coffee, so Financing. you got new not seedlings that that are rust resistant. That's right. Okay. And then you get the financing. So how is it going now? It's it's going quite well. We're we're targeting five thousand farmers and about fifty cooperatives, and those farmers, you know, their families. That's probably close to twenty twenty five to thirty thousand people total in these areas. It's going very well, and you know, we're hoping that it really revitalizes the sector in these regions and starts to provide immediate income for these families. So. You know, our plan is to put these things in place so that these farmers and their families can get back on their feet and continue to to work in this sector. Okay, so you're on the front end now with the sort of the producer co-op, getting the seeds and the education and the training, other crops, getting some loans, some money. So that's on the front end. And by, by doing it with co-ops, you can buy more quantity and get a better quality by work pooling all of this together. What about on the back end again with the marketing co-op of getting, once they 
start getting and producing, being able to sell to different markets and so forth? Yeah, so part of the project is clearly supporting marketing linkages and working with the co-ops to sign agreements with buyers. One of the uh, really interesting things we're doing is we're trying to link co-op, these coffee cooperatives with U.S. buyers in the cooperative sector here in the United States. For example, cooperative roasters and cooperative grocery stores, food co-ops. Food co-ops. Mm-hmm. Cooperation among cooperatives, number six. That's principle. exactly right, yeah. And so what we've done is we've taken down a group of six importers roasters and 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 food co-op folks to El Salvador sort of a trade mission to build relationships with these coffee growers and give them a chance to taste the coffee to look at the value chain and to and to build these these partnerships and so far we have uh, helped facilitate about 2.6 million dollars in trade since 2015 fantastic i see why you're enamored but let me you got Africa and Uganda with war, Southeast Asia and Timor with war, and in in El Salvador, El Salvador, it's fungus. Yes, but you know what? When we started in El Salvador, there was also a war going on. So these areas of conflict are particularly challenging, and it's, it's important through the cooperative model to build the sense of community and support and working together to make something move forward. Working together. Cooperative community. Okay. So I have a couple more minutes. What would you like to leave, Amy? What would you like to tell the audience? Well, what I'd really like to share with folks is that, you know, cooperatives are a worldwide phenomenon. They are used to improve lives around the world. And in the business that we are in, Inclusa International, which is the business of sustainable development, cooperatives are an amazing tool to help us achieve sustainable development in these very vulnerable communities around the world. And in the world that we're living in now, when we're seeing crashing of financial markets and people sort of struggling to make a living wage and people struggling with issues around health care and education, people should really take a look at this cooperative model and figure out in our context how to support it. And you can support it through the products that you buy, mm-hmm. the kind of sourcing. For example, if you go to REI to buy your, your, your outdoor goods or you go to a food co-op to buy your food or you bank at a, use a credit, credit union, union. Um, we can make choices as consumers and as individuals to support this model. I know that I have found it to be fascinating. I'm enamored. That's a new word for me to use. I love co-ops for watching people sort of blossom and bloom. I talked about the seniors. You're talking about the lady. I miss her name right now. Augustina. Augustina, who's creating vanilla seedlings. Who would have thought? So... Yes, it's fascinating to watch it to watch it work. It's uh, and anybody out there listening, just you can also look up housing co-ops. There's a lot of them in D.C. starting in the 1920s and 1930s. Most people don't know that the Watergate is the three buildings down there are, are co-ops. So NCB is trying to get the word out, get people to know about co-ops, and then so you can make choices. The Occupy Wall Street people, co-ops the answer. Credit unions are the answer. 
you can find credit unions. And if you have a problem in your community, daycare centers, schools, transportation, you need jobs, looking at the co-op model is a way of doing it. Yeah, I totally agree with you. That's right. And also, as we look at the new UN Sustainable Development Goals, which are 17 goals around um, agriculture, food security, gender, health, responsible consumption, access to water, education. When we look at these goals and the plans that we've set as communities around the world for achieving these goals for the poorest of the poor in, in our world, the cooperative model has a great role to play in achieving those sustainable development goals. Amy, thank you so very much for being on. It's uh, the light. You just brighten up when you talk about this. You just smile. And, and I was, so the other message I would like for you all to get is if you're looking for work that you can love doing, look at getting into this co-op world. Vernon, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely my pleasure. See everybody next Thursday. Thanks for being on. And have a cooperative week. Take care. This is Vernon Oak signing off. 1450 WOL.